I'm inviting you to join me for one of my favorite classes that I'm hosting the third week of June, how to plan, create, and execute a month of social media post in one day. Now, I have to tell you, this is my absolutely favorite class because people get results in real time, and it's been over a year since I've hosted it. Now, even if you've attended this class before, you're going to want to register for it because the team and I have completely revamped the class, and if you attend live, you're going to have the chance to win a private one-on-one coaching session with me. Yes, you and me in a coaching session. So learn how to create 30 days of content so that social media can be one of the easiest things you do for your business, not the hardest. Save your seat at jasminestar.com forward slash plan content. Or if it's easier, just send me a DM on Instagram and I will personally send you that link. Y'all know that I respond to my DMs. Now let's get started with the show. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of the Jasmine Star Show. If you're a first time listener, just so you know, I'm not your host. I'm actually Jasmine's podcast manager, Christy. And I'm here today to introduce this incredible conversation that Jasmine had with Matt Labrie on his podcast, Decoding Success. I love this interview because along with pieces of advice like how to get clear on your definition of success and tangible tips to believing that you are enough, Jasmine gives us her top three tips for cultivating a successful relationship. Now, knowing them personally, I think something that makes Jasmine and JD super unique is how they synergistically run a successful business and prioritize their relationship and love on their daughter Luna so well. So if you'd like some insight into Jasmine's life and her business, you're going to love this interview. So without further ado, let's listen in on Jasmine's conversation with Matt Labrie on his podcast, Decoding Success. Jasmine, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for being here and being a beacon of positivity nonetheless during this rather trying time. So really excited to decode your success today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, first question for you straight off the bat. This is how we kick off the show. I need to know, how do you personally define success? As the ability to do what I want, when I want, and with whom. I love that. Now, at what point in your life did that come about? Like, was it, I don't know, recently? Was it when you decided to leave law school? I'm really curious. I think that it was a gradual thing. It's not like I woke up one day and I was like, oh, this is my definition of success. Because I will say that was a point in my life where as the daughter of an immigrant and as somebody who just really didn't live or have um, access to anybody who had ever started a business or anybody who had like the quote unquote, you know, white picket fence and like that broad American dream. I think that for me, success initially early on, specifically in my twenties was if I make this much money, then I'm a success. And then what I quickly realized is as I acquired money and as I found what normally people would define as success as like a house or as a car or as money is that I realized that it was like almost existing in a vacuum that if I was able to get money, but it came at the cost of doing things that I found personal fulfillment in, I wasn't a success. I was just rich. And I think that there is this beautiful concentric circle that somewhere in the middle, you can make money doing what it is that you love to do. And that is what I truly define success as. But I had to actually kind of run in the wrong direction thinking that like acquisition was the key to like success and happiness when in actuality, it was simplicity with the freedom to do what you want and also be able to live the lifestyle that you hope for. 
that's beautifully said. And I definitely appreciate the transparency there because uh, it definitely doesn't come on the first try, right? Like you said, you had to go kind of down a different direction and then find it. So let me try and connect the dots here. Who was Jasmine in high school? Like what was the dream back then? Uh, You kind of alluded to what you were defining success as back then, but I'm really curious, like who were you in high school? (laughs) I love this question. Um, I feel like I was the friend to everybody. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wasn't qualified as like, oh, she's the popular girl because my parents were extraordinarily conservative, very, very, very strict. So I never went to a party in high school. So it's like, usually if you're popular, you're the kid who's going to parties. Um, but I would say that I was known by quite a few people. I, I, have, I also have a twin sister. So between she and I, it's like, we just had the ability to connect with a lot of people at different times. I think that if you were to ask somebody while I was in high school or even after high school, I think people would say, oh, she was a girl who was nice to a lot of people and worked really hard. And that is 100% who I was. I was homeschooled until high school. So I actually experienced public school when I was 14 years old. And so for me, I definitely stuck out like a sore thumb. I was like, you transfer classes? What's a locker? You know, I mean, I was completely completely lost. Um, But I think in those four years, I really grew up. I kind of understood who I was. And I think that for me, not, nobody in my family had ever gone to college. Nobody had ever seen a college application. And so the fact that we, myself and my sister, were even dreaming of that capacity, you know, that was like a big thing for us. And when I was a senior in high school, I was on the honors AP track and I ended up graduating at the top of my class. I wasn't valedictorian, but I was in the top the top 10 of my graduating class. And so that opened doors for me to get scholarships to go to school. And I think that that work ethic that I developed in high school was the same work ethic that I developed, that I honed in on college, which then opened the doors for me to get to law school on a scholarship as well. I love that. So while you were in high school, the dream was to become a lawyer or? No, that's like, yeah, thank you for connecting the dots. For me, I will never forget being in 11th grade in honors English. And we had to write a letter to ourselves in the future and the future being two years from that point. And two years after that point, I received the letter to my mother's house. Our English teacher had ended up mailing those letters to all of us. And in that letter, I had said, I'm at UCLA, the University of California at Los Angeles, and I'm majoring in history and English, and I am going to write. Like that was what I thought I wanted to do. What ended up happening was um, we had made a decision in our family that we, my sister and I, were going to go to college based on the school that gave us the most financial aid. And lo and behold, one school, Whittier College, gave my sister and I both the maximum amount of financial aid. And so that's how we decided we were going to school. But then as life often works, I ended up at UCLA for law school. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. So I just want to point out that practice you did, like writing that letter to yourself in the future, like that is such a powerful practice. Is that something you still do today? Game changing. Oh my gosh, completely and totally. And I have to say, this is crazy that we're having this conversation because in November, 2019, I invested to go to a copywriting workshop. No, I'm not a copywriter and I actually prefer to work with copywriters, but in order for me to actually fully understand the power and mechanisms of a copywriter, I like to know a little bit so that I can clearly articulate the vision and execution that I want. And the way that you do that is actually understanding what it is that they do. So at least that's how I learn. I'm not a book learner. I am actually like a learner by doing. So I went to this three-day workshop and at the end of the workshop, we were asked to write a letter to ourselves based on the business that we wanted to create and map our copywriting actions towards that. Well, we did that, put it in an envelope, completely forgot about it. And last week, I'm like, 
I receive an envelope and I see my penmanship, my very distinct penmanship. And I was like, what is this? I had no remembrance of writing this letter and I opened it up and you would be amazed that what is on the inside of your heart in your soul that you know is truth with a capital T when you write it down and it comes back to you, it has just manifested in a way that you're like, this is the thing I was supposed to be doing and this is how it was supposed to be. And in this letter, which I think was a little bit veering off from what the actual, like, um, the actual, practice or the question or the prompt was, was I wrote myself a letter saying, this is what you're supposed to do. It is not about the money. The money will always appear. The objective is to build the team that will execute on a vision that is far bigger than yourself. And I am reading this over again. And I'm like, oh my God, what has happened since November, 2019 up in through, you know, past quarter one of 2020 was I needed that reminder. And everything that I said was true with the capital T then holds that much more true here now in this moment. So going back to writing letters to yourself, heck yes, every day, all day, every single day for about five minutes, I just write three to five sentences. What am I doing? Where am I going? And I revisit them 365 days later and it's very powerful. That is so powerful. I love to hear that. I really, really love that. So I know your story. I want to be able to amplify it though. And I do have questions about it. So talk to me about why you left law school. I left law school because my mom had a relapse with brain cancer. And well, let me back up. Full story. I was tired, stressed, and overwhelmed in law school. I didn't like it. I felt like it was a bad fit, but I felt like I looked around school and I didn't see anybody else who was like, I'm just loving my life right now. It's so great being a law student. Right. Like nobody wakes up and is like, I'm so stoked to be carrying 47 pounds of books and staying <laughs> up all night reading. Like nobody's saying that. So I was just like, well, I guess this is just what you do. And again, I had, I had no litmus test. I had never even known anybody in my neighborhood or my family who had gone to get higher education. Like I didn't know that you didn't have to be so unhappy doing something. I just thought this is the cost of moving from one socioeconomic strata to another. This is how you get your parents out of the hood. This is what successful people do. Again, you don't know what you don't know. And in addition to being tired, stressed, and wildly overwhelmed during my one L, so law school is three years and they call it your first year, your one L. Right. During my 1L, I received news that my mom had a relapse of brain cancer. And she had been struggling for about eight and a half years at this time. And the doctors had said, you know, her time has come. We're not going to be doing chemo. We're not going to be doing radiation. We're going to remove the shunt from her brain that they were administering chemo in. And it was just kind of like, that was what we thought was the end of the road. And I'm like, I don't want to be at the end of my mother's life, stuck in law school, being tired, stressed, and overwhelmed. I want to be with her. But the tricky thing became, I was on full scholarship at UCLA and part of that scholarship covered campus housing. But if you're not a student, you can't stay on campus. And so I had to move. I had to move back home. And it was then that, you know, you had that wild realization that my mom was 50 years old and I was 25. And I thought, if I die when I'm 50, I don't want to die a lawyer. Like, what am I doing? And the conversations that you have with somebody at the end of their life is not about the things that they had done. Most of the time, people are looking back and talking about the things that they wish they would have done. And I think that that became my North Star. That became my barometer of like, wait a minute, why am I doing something when I know it's not something I want to do? And that was the first time in my entire life where something just shook so deeply and wildly inside of me that it broke the confines. And I was able to kind of sort of give myself the permission to explore what it would mean to create something. 
Right. And, you know, I just want to express my gratitude for you being fully transparent here again, because it's something that we both have in common. Actually, my mother battled cancer. And one thing that actually differs between the both of us is that you were embodying the strength to be by her side in that whole, um, you know, during that whole experience, right? Me, on the other hand, I was kind of just running away from it. I was just hustling as much as I could. I just started working a whole bunch of different jobs. I'm like, I'm just going to make so much money during this time and kind of like mask the pain that I was going through. So I just want to give you so much credit for finding that strength and, you know, being there with your family in that time. It's really incredible. Well, Matt, I feel like one is not better than the other. What I hear from you is like, I just want to be like, yo, homie, give her of grace because we were coping the best way we knew how. I don't think that there's one that's right or wrong because even though I moved back home, I, just like you, was compartmentalizing my emotions. Because I was in with close proximity to my mother doesn't necessarily mean that I was giving myself the permission to like grieve or understand the gravity of it. And it took like legit, legit, like it took years of like good therapy. And I have to say that my mom is still here with us. And that has been like truly profound. But at the same time, what I was doing was stuffing down my emotions to be like, you have to do what's next. You have to take care of your siblings. So I'm the eldest of five. And so my mom was going through this. My, my brother and sister were in junior high and high school. And it's just like, they can't not have a life. So it's like, I was driving them to basketball or dance practice, or my dad is a pastor of a church. And so I was just doing this stuff to keep the daily life going. And just because I happened to be next to her didn't necessarily mean that I had like a deeper or greater relationship. So I want to be like, yo, we were doing the best we could with what we had. And one is not better than the other. For sure. Right. I totally get it. So why did you find yourself kind of, you know, going along with life in, in its own way, like taking your siblings to practice, et cetera? Like, was that your upbringing that you felt like it, you were next in line to start doing that? Um, yeah, I feel like, so, okay. So we always, we always ask our parents, like there's five children. We're like, who's your favorite? Like, just be real. Just let us know. We're all, we're all old now. We, we can, we can figure it out. And my parents still to this day will deny, vehemently deny the fact that they've ever had a favorite child. My mom will say though, that whenever one of her children is going through something she, that she has an affinity towards that person, like she needs to help that person. And so she happens to maybe feel a little bit closer to that child at that time. And I think that what had happened was during this time, we were all trying to cope with what we firmly believe was going to be the loss of my mother. And my father was a pastor of a church in East Los Angeles. And I think he really poured himself into helping others because he felt so helpless. And it put us in the position to be like, well, if it, I said, and this is 100% me, not put on by my family, but I'm like, if it's not me, then who? Like who is going to do the laundry and who is right. going to keep things moving. And I really felt like my parents gave up so much to raise us because we were raised in the hood. And so my parents were not going to send us to the public school that you had to go through metal detectors and there were drive-by shootings. And so my mom, who barely graduated high school, my dad who graduated high school, but didn't even know how to read at the time, were like, yeah, let's homeschool our kids. And I think that by all intents and purposes, people are like, you two are the last people who should ever be homeschooling kids. But they just tried so dang hard and they gave up so much that I just felt like if that's what you did for me, like who's going to step in for my younger brother and sister. And I took right. on that role. So yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't know if it's my upbringing. I don't know if it's just who I am. I just don't know if we were all helpless and I wanted to have some semblance of normalcy and give that to my siblings. I don't know, but it's a hundred percent what I chose at that time. I love that. Now you mentioned your father being a pastor. Are you a woman of faith? Yes. 
I love that. I love that. So I, I always ask that. I mean, I, I have in God, I trust tattooed across my chest. I talk about it openly on this show and I'm just always curious to know, but um, I definitely respect that as well. And especially like just hearing your story, like it kind of shows like you're, you're shining light on that without actually saying it. So I definitely appreciate you talking about that, but moving on, what happened after law school and, you know, being by your mother's side, et cetera. Um, so I, in high school, I met a really great guy and we dated long distance and well, while we were in college and when I went into law school, I was kind of like, this is about the time that girls start getting married. But I was like, no, no, no. I got like, I got my career on my mind. I don't want to get distracted. And he was so kind and patient. But then during that year, when I moved back home, I was like, I want my mom to see me get married. Like I want my mom to see one of her children get married. We had, by this time we'd been dating nine years. We knew that that's the path that we were going to go. And so he proposed and we planned a wedding in like less than three months. And so I got married and the doctors are like, your mom's not going to walk and she's not going to talk and she's not going to travel. But she did. She walked me down the aisle. There's 22 people at our wedding. I married my best friend. And like at that point in time, I was at a crossroads because I received a letter from UCLA saying, okay, it's time for you to come back. You can reacclimate, catch up with your studies and still get your scholarship. And I looked at this letter. I'll never forget. It was written, it was printed on pink paper. And I'm like, this is so random. And I just cried. And I was like, I don't want to go back, but what do I do? And so my brand new husband. We've been married maybe a month and a half. And he was just like, well, if you could do one thing for the rest of your life and be happy, what would it be? And I will never forget sitting in front of a plate of, a plate of Mediterranean pasta, like feta cheese and penne <laughs> and like olives. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, nobody has ever asked me that. Like, what is this luxury you speak of? Like, what, what is this I want to do? And he's like, no, really, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be a photographer. And he's like, okay, but you don't have a camera. I was like, I know, but if I had a camera, like, I think I could do something with it. And he's just like, okay. He said, I would rather see you happy and fail than successful and do something that you hate. Right. And like, that was just the permission slip. Now, I don't want to make it sound like all super Hallmark Christmas movie because we were pretty pragmatic. He's like, listen, you have three years to go back to UCLA and get your scholarships. He's just like, why don't you just take a year, just take one year and just see what happens. And um, with that, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to spend a year doing this. But I'm like, I have no money. Uh, he was with the startup company at the time. I had no money. I didn't got a job. I got like a part-time three days a week job. And I was like, okay, that Christmas, he gave me a digital camera. It was very simple. It's very simple digital camera, but I was like, oh my God, it's happening. And then you have that realization that you're like, after a few frames and you like look at your photos, you're like, oh my God, I'm really bad. Like I was really bad. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, it's like, you know, it's bad when people at your dad's church, you know, you offer to take photos of them for free and they're like, oh no, it's okay. You know, it's like, you gotta be real right. bad. You gotta be real bad. <laughs> I was like, y'all just don't love God. That's what I hear you say. Um, but no, it was just like this kind of like learning process. And like, I just spent hours on Google and hours in forums, just reading what people were doing. And then in 2007, I landed my first client. And then that is so two, awesome. yeah. And then by 2010, I was voted one of the top photographers in the world. So that's pretty crazy. That's amazing. All right. So I have a whole bunch of questions off of this. Number one, you talked about dating long distance. Everyone right now in this world is dating long distance <laughs> because of quarantine. Uh, 
<laughs> like we are forced to date long distance. In fact, I am feeling all the struggles of it. I'm curious, how did you make that work? Okay, so let me just let me get you to the end. I don't know if you ever read those books like when you were a kid, it was like Nancy Drew or like the boxcar kids or like the Hardy Boys where you can choose your own adventure. Let me just take you to the end of the book, Matt. It's really good that if you can actually get to the end of the book, every chapter was a build up to it. I can't I could just cannot thank the experience of dating long distance because it forced us to articulate our emotions beyond physical connection and proximity. And it's just like, there are so many uh, like nuances that go past between two humans. And in a way that's beautiful, but in a way it kind of clouds the ability for you to actually say, I'm having a bad day and here's why. And sometimes that physical proximity is I'm having a bad day. Somebody comes in, puts their arms around you, gives you a kiss, slaps your bum or says like, hey, let's make dinner together. And it's like this cool like relationship we just move past it but when it is relegated to phone text or video conferencing that doesn't exist and so you have to just like sit in the suck and that has strengthened our relationship and really opened up how we communicate with each other which is powerful because we're also business partners and so what we learned during that time apart really has set the foundation for how we communicate when we're speaking about business versus us having like a husband and wife conversation Right. So how do you find yourself kind of splitting the business and like the personal side of things, right? Because being in business with family and then being in business with a significant other, like that is not necessarily the easiest task, you know? Yeah, no. So um, most of the time it's pretty clear when we're talking about business and personal, but there have been a couple of times where it's like my husband will have to stop and be like, wait, wait, wait are we having a husband and wife conversation or are we having a business partner conversation? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Because sometimes, sometimes when you're having a conversation with your partner, you don't want your partner to fix it. And as my business partner, he's really good at like poking holes. He's really good at vision casting. He's really good at like patching things up. But sometimes like as a wife, I'm like, I just want you to say, I'm on your side. That sucks let's have some wine, you know, right. like, so, like, like that. And so there's been a couple of times, but by and large, when we're having business conversations, we've clearly denoted the roles that we take within the business. So when it comes to like marketing, branding, outward facing components, I am 51% in charge of those things. When it comes to travel, finances, legal HR, he's 51% in charge of those things. So that we don't really have any bearing or foundation to like argue or disagree with because because at the end of the day, he could look across from me and say, I'm 51. And then boom, you just have to shut up. Like, you're right. Like, I have to trust that the decision that you're making, even though I might not agree with it, like, that's your domain. So right. like best pieces of advice would be to have clear communication, but also clearly denote who, like, which projects belong to who. That has been a total game changer for us. Right. I love that. So from a general perspective, right, if there were like three things, three keys to having a successful relationship, what would you say they are? Because I mean, you mentioned nine years, and I'm sure you've been in a relationship more than nine years at this point. But like, what do you feel like are the top three keys to a successful one? Number one is communication. Right. Like, like, I know that everybody says that, but it's really true. And it's not just communication in regards to like facts, but it's communication clearly identifying the emotions you're feeling and why. Because it's it's not very helpful to your partner to say, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling stressed. 
because like you have like the, you have like the emotion, but then you have the underlying reason. And I think it's super helpful that if I am communicating to my husband, like, Hey, I'm really sad. And then I say, I think it could be because of X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden it helps framework what maybe I just hadn't openly said, like the narrative in my mind. So it helps put context on how he could approach the conversation. Secondly, I would think like it's okay to ask for permission for how you want that person to respond. So sometimes JD, my husband, business partner, will say something and I'm like, wait, are, can I, am I going to be 100% honest right now? Or like, what do you need from me? And sometimes you don't need your partner to be 100% honest. Like sometimes you just need them to like sit with you. And then sometimes that person's like, no, I need you to do it to me straight. So open communication, the permission to ask for honesty and then grace. Like it's so important to assume that the other person is doing the best they can with what they have. Like it's so important to assume that like, hey, I don't think you meant to try to hurt my feelings. Because if you love that person, you're not trying to hurt your feelings. But sometimes you could say something and you're like, that is such a salty move. And you can immediately like flash back with venom and vitriol, or you could say, you know what? I don't really think you meant it that way. And when you call somebody out to be like, I know you probably didn't mean it, but did you really mean to like hurt my feelings and, you know, talk about that? And nine times out of 10, they're like, whoa, sorry, I didn't see it that way. And then there's always that other time where you're just like, you know what, bro? I'm not even gonna talk to you right now. No. Like I can't do that. <laughs> but like by and large, that really helps a ton. Right. I love that. Now you mentioned wine. If you could only drink one wine the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, it changes all the time. But right now I'm really vibing with Contessa or okay. Quintessa. Quintessa. Like, I mean, I know a wine that begins with a Q U I N like you think it's going to be way fancy, but it just drinks so extraordinarily well. And I am a big, big Napa Valley red wine cab drinker. And right now that's just, it's my jam. And it used to be, it used to be Camus. Like, and I know that's like the trendy wine to say right now, but if I can be like a wine hipster, like, you know, I was drinking Camus a few years ago. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Awesome. So where is Jasmine at today? I'm in Newport beach, California. I crazy enough. Like, I don't even know if this is truly the answer of the question that you're looking for. But, um, so my husband and I have been in the adoption process. Goodness. Like we were in the adoption process a very long time. So I'm like upwards of eight years on and off. It's just been like a, a long way in struggle. So we've learned just to keep moving with our lives because you can't really plan for the unexpected. And so in January, 2020, we had a big launch within our business. Things were going crazy and it was awesome. And then we closed the doors and then unexpectedly, we came across a fixer over in a part of Newport beach that we'd always wanted to live. And this house is like built in 1950 has never been touched. It is you know, it's ripe. Like this is like a ripe fruit that you're like, oh, it's about to turn bad. But we put in an offer. It was accepted, but it's contingent on us selling our house. And we're like, I'm not sure we could sell our house. Our house sold within 24 hours. So within wow. 48 hours, we bought a house, we sold a house. And then two days later, Matt, we get news that we were placed for adoption with a baby who had been born in Las Vegas. And we had like 37 hours to like make a decision to pack our bags we're like, we're all in. We left this home 
we went to Las Vegas and then due to like a few complications and things in court proceedings, we ended up having to live in Las Vegas for almost three weeks. And it was during that time that we're signing papers and a mortgage. And finally we have clearance to cross state lines with our new baby girl. And we're so excited and we get home and we have a week to pack up everything and start building the project, except for the fact that now that we have a new baby, we can't move into the house because it has asbestos and we wouldn't be approved by the state. And so we're like, okay, what do we do? And then COVID hits and no construction is happening and no walkthroughs are happening. And so now we're like, we need a place to live. And so in just a few days, we found an apartment, put our stuff in storage. We moved in with the baby and here we are. The very long answer to how we ended up in an apartment. You know, like life just throws some curveballs and you're like, okay, like, you know, what else can we do? But just roll through the bunches. That is so true. And that is amazing. Congratulations on all of that. That is absolutely amazing. I'm just really curious, like, how do you find yourself balancing business and, you know, the curveballs and like, how do you stay in the batter's box to be able to hit the curveball nonetheless when it's thrown at you? Uh, To understand that if every night my head hits the pillow and I say I did the best I could, then you can't ask for anything else. Because there was a time in my life where I was holding myself to this like, really high barometer. Like I would look and say, that's all the things you should be doing. And so at the end of the day, all I would do would just like punch myself in the face. Like the person who I was in the ring with was me. And I kept on beating myself up saying, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. But it takes just as much energy for me to tell myself you're not doing enough as it does to say you're doing everything you can. And the minute I changed the narrative to actually, I don't know, be nice to myself, I actually started enjoying the process. I actually started saying, what am I expecting? You can't expect water from a rock. Like, are you doing all you can? Are you watching Netflix? No. Are you playing softball? No. Are you playing Madden? No. Are you like, what are you wasting time? No. Like I'm doing everything I can. If that's what I'm doing, what more do I expect? You know, then you're good. Right. Exactly. I love that. So let me throw a curveball at you. What is a question that you wished more people would ask you when you do interviews like this and how would you answer it? Um, I think actually is a testament to who you are and like your interview skills is you started that at the beginning. And that was like the definition of success. Because I don't think that we talk so much about that. I think that people assume that success looks the same for everyone. And it totally doesn't. Because I do think that there is the ability for us to have a clouded vision of what success is. You know, is it the 90210 zip code? Is it a private jet? Is it your Ferrari? Is it like, what is it, right? And so then we assume that in order to be successful, you need those things. But until you actually take the time to define success for yourself, you're only ever going to be in the rat race and feel really far behind. Because it is totally okay for somebody to say that their level of success is being able to take their family of five on a Disney cruise. Like the minute you do that, you look back and say, I'm a success. Like a success for some people is to be able to have their side hustle turn into their full-time gig so that they're making dinner for their family every single night. Some people's version of success is being able to retire their partner. So if what you do to reach success takes you away from the things you truly define as your success. So in the pursuit of the Ferrari, in the pursuit of the private jet, if it takes you away from family dinners, the Disney cruise, or retiring your spouse, you will end up so unhappy and empty at the end of the day. The greatest gift that you can give yourself as a human, even more so as an entrepreneur, is to define what does success look like for me? When will I say, dang, you made it? 
When? Because if you don't give yourself five minutes to clearly identify what it means, you're always going to be let down and feel like you're behind the eight ball. And my friends, if you think back to who you were 10 years ago and you see your life now, I'm asking you, could you even dream this big? Like, could you even think that this could be your life? And instead of looking around and saying, man, I have everything that I dreamt of. Does it look and feel the way that I thought it would? Maybe, maybe not. But dang, I could say I'm happy now. Then when you reach that level of success, you could redefine what success looks like in the future for you. But until you actually define what it means for you, you will always feel behind and you will always feel unhappy and dissatisfied. Right. That is so powerful. That is so powerful. I love this. So Jasmine, on the way out of these interviews, we asked three questions. The first one's a little cliche and I may already know the answer to it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And it is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? jump and the net will appear jump and the net will appear yeah okay talk to me about that okay 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 so oftentimes i and many of us listening get in our heads right so we think about all the things we want to play a, a chess game with the universe and the universe will just look at you and laugh because you cannot make moves without knowing what your opponent will do. So instead of you sitting here and just thinking about all the things you want to do, you actually have to do. And I would always stand at the precipice of an opportunity of my life and my dreams and just teeter on my toes. Do I do it? Do I not? Do I do it? Do I not? And somebody in 2009 said, jump and the net will appear. Just take the action because there will always be a net underneath you. And I don't know why it like it broke shackles in my soul. And now I'm just like, I'm out here like a leapfrog. I'm just jumping. What's the next thing? <laughs> jumping, jumping, jumping. And a decade later, I can look back and be like, dang, the net always appeared. And that's what I want to tell people. Stop. Get out of your head. Being in your head, right. thoughts get you nothing. Action gets you something. Might not be the thing you want, but at least you can say, okay, not going to do that again. What do I try next? Legit. So how can you get people to actually believe that, right? As opposed to them saying, well, Jasmine, that may have worked for you, but maybe not for me, right? So like, how can you get them to actually believe that and take that action? Well, you have to first and foremost, like one, don't take me at face value. Good for you for questioning. But then you have to have the self-awareness and the chutzpah and the wherewithal to say, how many times am I going to get punched in the gut and get back up? Because if you're one of those, like I get punched and I stay down or I get punched and get back up, but I'm like a little bit, I'm a little softer now. And then I get punched again. And it's like, oh, that was it. Like, if that's the game you're playing, this is not for you. Your, your net won't appear because you're not willing to keep on jumping. If right. you have the ability to say, hey, I know how to take it on the chin, but I'm always going to get up. If you have that resilience, if you have that determination, and let me just say out straight out, if you have the desperation, because sometimes the people from the hood, sometimes you're from the ghetto, it's just like, you know what the bottom feels like. And you're just like, I can't get any lower than I am now. I'm going to keep on getting because I'm going to keep on getting up because I know what the cubicle feels like. I know what the long commute feels like. I know what can't pay my bills feels like. I know what not being able to buy my partner the Christmas gift, or the birthday gift that I want. I know what that feels like. So I'm going to keep on getting up because I know what that is. And I've learned to live with little and I've learned to live with much. I'm going to keep on trying for the much. If you don't have that in you, then this probably conversation is not for you. But if you have that, try it. Try it. It works. 
I love that. Wow. I could talk to you for days, by the way. It's like, I, I could really talk to can't. you for days. I'm like, we're just like new friends, but I'm just like, homie, like, let me repurpose this podcast. I'm out here loving this conversation. <laughs> I swear I really could. So let me reverse engineer the question I just asked you. I asked, what was the best piece of advice you received? So let's talk about the opposite. Like what was a piece of advice you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but proved to be true over time? Um, you can hustle your way to a million dollars and you can't hustle your way past that. And okay, so you can then, hustle your way to a million, but you can't hustle your way past that? Yeah. So, and, and it took me, and like, I was like, no, you just, you don't get me. Like, you don't, you don't get it. But like, the more I sat with that, the more real it felt. And it felt real in two ways. It felt real for my business as a whole. And then it felt real for independent projects in my business. And I saw it play out that I hustled my way to a million dollars, like gross. I hustled my way to a million dollars net. And then when I took on a particular project with my business, I was able to hustle it to like a million. And then it's like you hit a threshold. Like there's only so much of you. There's only so much that you know how to do. And you almost seem to like tap out at this idea of seven figures that you need to bring on others to help you get more. Other people who are better at your weak points, other people who poke holes in your theory, other people who know how to sharpen you like sword against sword. So I realized that I could not get my business or projects beyond that million dollar mark without having other people involved with it. And I hated the, I hated the advice when I got it. And now I'm just like, it was right. And I just had to sit with it for a while before I actually understood the gravity of what he was saying to me. That's so interesting. Are you familiar with Gay Hendricks by any chance? The Big Leap? Yes. Yes. Yes, so, I'm a reader. I'm a reader, homie. I love that. I, that's a great book, first and foremost. But do you feel like that was an upper limit you were hitting? Or do you think it was just like you needed to, you know, get more resourceful and put people around you? I actually think it was both because at the time in which I had heard this piece of advice, it was in a group of other seven figure business owners. And I saw just people nodding their heads, but I was like, y'all be tripping. You don't know the hustle of like a Mexican, a Mexican (laughs) out here, you know, like you don't know the hustle. Um, But I mean, and it took, I'm telling you, it was the advice I didn't want to hear. And it took me a while because it was scrappling of like, nah, I don't really feel like that. And here's another thing when it comes about upper limits with money. Um, I have a complete disassociation with money now. Like I feel like for a while I said, if I get this, if I make that, then I'll, and then I just realized that like, it's empty. Like that's really, really empty. Like, and actually scientifically studies have shown that when people make more for a family of four in the middle of the United States, now, of course it's different on coastals, but like the minute a family of four can make over $74,000 in the middle of the United States, like you literally have your food and a roof of your head and a car. And like, that's what you need for security and quote unquote happiness. And anything beyond that number only makes you marginally more safe and marginally more happy. And I started noticing that like, if I had X in the bank or if I had three X, it wasn't necessarily changing the day-to-day like functions of my life. And so I'm just kind of like, I'm just going to stay out 
of really looking and feeling like I am only a success if this happens. Like this launch is only a success if this happens. So for me, I don't really struggle with upper limit. Like I can only make so much, which is why it could have been that in a residual component. But by and large, it was just like, it was just something I didn't want to hear. But I'm telling you that I heard this in 2000, uh, in 2019. And in 2019, January, 2019, I wrote a letter and it was like, not a letter. Yeah. A letter journal entry of like, I said, what do I need to do to three X my company in 12 months? And I just brain dumped everything I didn't like to do, the things that needed to happen, where was my weak points. And at the time in January, 2019, we had a team of four, two of the, uh, I'm sorry, four. It's like myself, my husband, and two other people. And one of those people was part-time. And now, in a matter of a year, we have now a team of 16. Wow. And what we've been able to do and how fast we've been able to grow and scale has been so profound that it blew my mind that even though I didn't necessarily want that advice to be true, I can now stand and say it is. It is because do I think that I would have gotten to this level of success with a much smaller team? Yes. Would I have done it in this amount of time? No. Right. Right. So So the speed aspect comes into play too. That's awesome. I definitely appreciate that. So this is a challenging question and some people love me asking this. Some people don't because they don't want to hear this or, you know, kind of only put it in this one way, but if you could only give one piece of advice, meaning if Jasmine was hopping on podcasts, hopping on stages, writing books, et cetera, you know, putting out courses and you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? To remind people that they are enough or like to the person who needs to hear this right now, you are enough that other people have said the thing that you want to say. Other people have done the things you want to do. Other people have more, are doing more, have been given more, have smaller waistlines, have a better head of hair, have a nicer car, have a better zip code. They've all done the things you want to do, but anybody else's success has nothing to do with yours. That there is somebody in the world who needs to hear what you have to say, needs to see what you are doing, and needs it to come just from you. So you are robbing God, you are robbing the universe of what you have been put here to do because you won't give yourself the permission to just be. And everything you are in all of your inadequacies, your idiosyncrasies, and your beautiful, glorious talents should be shared. And when you don't, the person you rob is yourself and the others who are supposed to impact. So friends, you are enough. I love that. Now, and I said that was the last question, but I have to ask. <laughs> I have to. Like, what are the steps to believing that, right? Because, you know, you say that you're robbing yourself, but oftentimes we don't even realize that we lie to ourselves. We cheat ourselves more than we do it to other people. You know, like, and I'll give an example. Like, if you want six-pack abs or, you know, you want a fat butt or some shit like that, you know, like you're going to potentially have donuts one night and you're just going to say, it's okay. You're going to brush it under the rug. So like, I'm really curious, like what are the steps to believing you're actually enough? I mean, I can only use my journey as an example because I don't know anything else. I spent the vast majority of my life telling myself, not in these exact words that you're not enough, but everything I thought is you should have done more, you should have done better, you could have done this and you could have done that. And as a result of only hearing those narratives, because a belief is simply a thought that you repeat again and again. A belief 
is just a thought you repeat again and again. I believed I was enough. I believed I wasn't doing enough. I believed I didn't have enough. I believed that I could be doing better. And that is not true because every single day, if I am doing all that I can in the best way that I can, what I need to tell myself is you are enough. And the only way that you actually believe that is if you keep on saying it again and again and again and again. You need to brainwash yourself into believing that because here's the thing is when you have your thoughts that keep on repeating, it becomes a belief. And when you have a belief, it becomes an action. And when you take action, you get results. That's the only way it's going to happen because you could be taking action and still believe that you suck, that you're dumb, that you're behind and you'll never succeed. And guess what? You will never succeed because the only story you're telling yourself is that. It isn't until you reverse engineer the whole thing and say, I am enough. I am doing the best I can. My success is a foregone conclusion. I am out here to learn not to fail. When you just say that that again and again and again, it becomes true. Yeah. It most definitely does. Jasmine, I I love this. I'm so grateful to be able to amplify this. Now I'm going to have all of your social links, websites, projects, all that good stuff in the show notes of this episode. But Jasmine, thank you again for hopping on here. I truly do appreciate it. You're amazing. Wasn't that such a great episode? I'm telling you guys, listening to Jasmine tell her story from start to finish seriously never gets old for me. It's just so inspiring. And Matt was a great host who knew just where to steer the conversation. Friend, if you enjoy the Jasmine Star Show as much as I do, would you make me, Jasmine, and really our entire podcast team do a happy dance by leaving an iTunes review? All you have to do is open the Purple Apple Podcasts app on your phone, search for The Jasmine Star Show, and click Write a Review. There are already hundreds of amazing entrepreneurs who've taken the time to do so, like Christina Marie Blog, who said, will not miss an episode. Jasmine is an incredible communicator and shares invaluable wisdom. She shares manageable, achievable action steps and does it all with an authentic voice. She's very intentional with her platform and does such a good job getting me motivated to take action. Thank you so much, Christina. And thank you, Hustler, for listening to this show that we tirelessly work on every single week to make sure you get tangible tips and inspirational content to help you build your business and a life you love. Until next time, friends. Bye for now.